Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here today. So we are not going to be in Romans today. We are going to be in all kinds of other places. And uh, if you'll be opening your Bibles to Genesis 50, that will uh, help in getting us started. Just a quick comment on uh, the evening service. We will uh, start tonight, and actually what we will be doing is having an evening service weekly thereafter. Uh, And so uh, we're excited to be uh, starting that. Um, It's been requested that I preach the same sermon from the morning, only faster. So that's a total lie. That is not the truth at all. I'm not often requested to speak faster than I do. So it'll be an entirely different service and a different message, etc. I'm excited to be together again. I'm excited for that opportunity for us to be able to worship in that capacity and have uh, some other opportunities because of uh, a little less formality in the in the evenings, etc. And so I'm looking forward to today and the kickoff. I'm looking forward to being together in the park this afternoon at uh, 4.30 and then uh, being in here at 6 for our evening service. So that, that's an exciting thing for us to be able to do. It's a, obviously a change for us. It's uh, kind of going back to something we used to do quite a while ago. And uh, I think it ha- will have great benefit in, uh, in the life of the church. It'll have benefit, I suspect, in my own life. So you've opened your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. And I want to read to us just one paragraph here, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that we can call you our Father. We worship you this morning. We declare that you alone are God and there is none like you. You are high above all. Almighty. All wise. You are sovereign. You are the creator. And you are holy. And you have made yourself known to the contrite and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so we praise you, Father, that you have made yourself known to us in Christ. 
We praise you that you have redeemed us, that you've reconciled us to yourself in what Christ has accomplished. We look forward to celebrating that fact, being encouraged by that fact as we celebrate the Lord's Supper later. Father, we revel in this reconciliation with you that we have in the finished work of Christ. And we revel in the fact that you have given us your word. That we don't have to enter into philosophy to imagine things about you, to try and uh, make some kind of deductions and hope that we're right. But instead, you've communicated yourself to us in your word. And so, Father, as we turn to a topic today that, that uh, will be a new one for many people to think about, I pray that you would speak to us from your word, that you would help us to understand what you have for us here, that we would hear from you in your word today. So we commit ourselves to you and we commit this time to you and look for you to work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our time in Romans has uh, raised a lot of questions, maybe questions that we have not asked before or maybe raised questions that we um, have debated perhaps with other people or maybe raised questions that we thought there is no answer to that question. And so some of these uh, questions are difficult. They've been hard for us to wrestle through perhaps. Uh, maybe we would just as soon avoid some of the questions. But it turns out the Bible raises those questions. And so we should look at what the Bible says in answer to those questions. And that question that we're going to look at today is, if God is absolutely sovereign, even over the human will, even in the matter of salvation, then what of man's will? What of man's freedom to choose? How do those relate together? So today is intended to be a discussion looking at various passages of God's will and ours and how they relate to one another. Now many have tried to answer that question. They've tried to work those thoughts together and there are two very basic methodologies that you can go about to try and resolve this problem. The first one is philosophical and the second one is biblical. The philosophical starts with man, starts with what we observe and what we know to be true around us, and then works from that up towards what therefore must be true about God, what must be true on that realm. That's the philosophical method. The biblical method, the one that we as Christians must follow, starts with what the Bible says, starts with Scripture and works from Scripture to our experience, to our lives. And so today, that's a, I've, that's a bold standard that I've put out there. And, and, uh, but today, it's our desire, it's my desire, it's the plan for the morning for us to work through what Scripture says about how the will of God, the absolutely sovereign will of God, relates to man's will. So we're going to seek to find our answers from Scripture. And one thing that we've already found in seeking to do that in answer to other questions is that sometimes the answer Scripture leads us to, we don't really like. Or perhaps the answer Scripture leads us to, 
We still don't comprehend, even though that's the answer that Scripture leads us to. Often, what the Bible tells us is not popularly acceptable. Some examples of that would be the Trinity, the deity of Christ, or the doctrine of justification by faith itself. Those are things that philosophy would not lead you to, but Scripture tells us is true, but the world doesn't like it. The philosophy of this world would argue at every turn. These, these, these doctrines, these truths, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of justification by faith, and on and on, they were not derived at by philosophy. They were derived at by looking at Scripture and seeing what Scripture says on these topics. And so today we're going to look at various passages to try to answer the question that has been raised for us in Romans chapter 9. How does the will of God and the will of man, how do those two relate to one another? So we're just going to look at some passages. We could look at more, but that would be a much longer study. That would be uh, more time than we have today. So I'm going to focus in on just a few. The initial question that's raised even by what I read before our prayer time, is if God is sovereign and if man has a will, then who intends an action? Or in other words, the way it was put in Genesis fifty twenty, who means it? Who means it? If God intends it and yet man intends it, who means it? And so what we read there in Genesis 50, 20 is kind of a summary of events that have gone on before. And, and if we think back to, by the way, turn back to uh, Genesis 45, we're going to be reading a few verses in there. But if you remember the Joseph story, you remember the narrative of what happened to him. He was not the popular son. He had lots of brothers and he was the favored son and he was um, not liked by his brothers. In fact, they grew to hate him more and more the more he was blessed by God and his father. And so they actually eventually got to the point where they decided to sell him to get rid of him, to sell him away into slavery. And because of that, he went down into Egypt. And you know the rest of the story with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and then being thrown in prison and then Pharaoh and all of that story. That's the history of what happened to Joseph. Well, we want to read some specific comments that are made in uh, this passage today. If you'll look back to Genesis 45, I want to read just the first few verses to begin with. So this is when Joseph and his brothers are first meeting, and, and, uh, and there's been other conversation between them, but this is kind of the revelation moment of who he is. 45 and verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He says, first of all, you sold me here. Speaking to his brothers in that context, in Egypt, you sold me here. 
This was your doing. And he's telling them, don't be distressed about it. Don't be angry at yourself. But you sold me here. You did it. You intended it. You sold me here. And yet he continues and says, For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. You sold me. God sent me. God sent me. And if we keep on reading... He says, so, verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. God is the one who sent me here. You see, Joseph sees the bigger picture. He understands the larger aspect of what is going on here. And he recognizes through these verses that we've read, you sold me into slavery. You concocted the plan. You carried off the plan. You had your purposes in doing so. You sold me into slavery. Yet, God sent me here so that I might preserve life. God sent me here so that I would be in this position and able to bless God's people, including you who sold me. He's seeing the larger picture so that he can even say, so it was not you who sent me here. You pause for a second. You say, but Joseph, you just said we sold you there. You said it a couple of different times. You, you, you sold me here. So what do you mean? It was not you, but it was God. Well, I think what Joseph is saying is it was not ultimately you. It was not only you. It was God who sent me here. God is accomplishing his purpose. The brothers don't see the larger purpose and Joseph sees the larger purpose purpose. The brothers sold him, but God sent him. They performed the action, but God was executing his overall plan. I think what Joseph means there in verse 8 is, it was not ultimately you who sent me here, but it was God. It was not only you. Look, God was doing something much bigger than just you selling me into slavery. And so we turn for explanation of those verses. We go back to Genesis 50. And we look at Joseph's statement there in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it. God meant it. That's kind of Joseph's summary statement of what he had already said before. The brothers were now worried because dad was dead and and this will be Joseph's opportunity to be able to kill his brothers, to punish his brothers and it not harm the dad. He says, no, you meant it. You meant it for evil. And God meant it. He meant it for good, to bring about good, to bring about provision that many would be kept alive as they are today. And so I like to ask the question when I'm in discussion with people on this topic, who meant it? Who meant it? 
We even sang in a song. What, what our enemies intend for evil, you work it for our good. You see how there's a difference between those, those words? The enemies intend evil in the song, but you, God, work it for our good. You see how they, it's not a parallel verb. It's not a parallel structure. Well, here in 5020, it's exactly parallel. He says, you meant it and God meant it. It uses the exact same Hebrew verb. You meant it and you meant it for evil. But God meant it and God meant it for good. See, we, we can't say that the brothers meant it and God allowed it. You see how that's not parallel? It doesn't say that. Nor does it say that God did it and they were just along for the ride like robots. It doesn't say that either. He uses parallel structure to say, you meant it, brothers, and God meant it. You had different motives. You had different purposes, different things you were seeking to accomplish, but you meant it and God meant it. That's parallel. They're exactly parallel. The brothers meant it. God meant it. So that raises the question for us. If, if, if God intends the actions that man intends, then our second question is how can man be held accountable? How can man be held accountable? Well, in answer to that question, I want to move to another passage. And this is Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to be focusing, beginning at verse 5, all the way through verse 15 in our discussion. So this is obviously a completely different context. This is uh, centuries later than, than, than what we looked at before. This is a different context. Isaiah is uh, uh, speaking to uh, or speaking about or in the context of Israel uh, and what's going to happen, what's going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem, uh, what, what God will... Uh, bring about and etc. And so Isaiah is speaking here. And we see, first of all, in this context, you're going to hear some very harsh words spoken about God's people. The evil nation, the godless nation being spoken of in verse 6 is Judah. It's God's people. He says of them, he calls them a godless nation. Well, see, they've been disobedient, they've been rebellious, they've been idolatrous, they've been rebelling against God, and God is saying, I'm going to send judgment. I'm going to send judgment on my people, and here's how he's going to do it. We see, first of all, God's motive. God's motive. Look at verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my Fury. That Assyria is God's rod of discipline. God is going to discipline his people and he's, he reaches out and grabs Assyria as the switch, as the rod with which to discipline his people. The, they are the instrument of God's fury. Verse 6, against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. That's harsh. 
He's speaking of his people. And he says that my people are now the objects of my fury. They have been so disobedient. They've been so idolatrous. They've been so rebellious against me. And for so long, despite all the prophets I sent, despite my word that I've given them, despite my work, they've been rebellious. And so he reaches out and he grabs a staff. He grabs a stick, a rod, a switch, a spanking spoon, a belt. And he's going to discipline his own people. It's directed towards God's people. And so he sends Assyria as his instrument of discipline, his instrument of judgment. He sends Assyria to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like mire in the streets. That is harsh language for God to use about his people, what he intends to happen to his people. Assyria's military invasion, the devastation that they're going to bring on Judah is God's rod of discipline against them. Now, I I used various examples of instruments of discipline because I've had many, many of them used on me. I grew up in the 70s in Arkansas, okay? And my my grandmother would uh, often, she would have all five of us grandkids uh, hanging out at her house with nobody else around to defend her. (laughs) And my cousin, who was a few years older than me, he was was, uh, a smart... uh, Heathry. Um, huh? Yeah, he was sneaky. He was, he was wily. And so one day he had done something to get my, my grandmother very angry at him, and he deserved it. <laughs> I don't remember what it was, but he usually deserved it. And so she told him, go outside and get me a switch. That's awful, right? That's scary. So she's trying to teach him a lesson, right? You're going to bear the brunt of the switch that you go and choose. Well, he's no dummy. He comes back inside with like a branch, okay? He's lugging this thing in. That's going to be the branch, the rod. Well, he knows that, first of all, his grandmother was this tall, so she can't even swing the thing, and she's not going to hit him with a baseball bat, so he knows that. Well, she's smart also, and so she sends him out to grab another one. So he comes, he comes back in this time with a thin little, you know, a switch, you know, that would like draw blood kind of thing. He come, carries it back in, you know, it's like a willow branch or something, and, and he hands that to her because he knows she's not trying to kill him. She's not trying to, you know, draw blood, and so she finally just threw it down and stomped off, and, and that was that. So he got out of the whole thing. Well, that, that's what's going on here. God is reaching for a switch. And so he grabs Assyria, a fitting switch, a fitting instrument for judgment, a fitting instrument for discipline on his people. His motive is to discipline them. His motive is to punish them in their rebellion. That's what he said he wants to do. He wants Assyria to go and do those things, to take spoil, to seize plunder, to tread them down like mire in the streets. So he grabs that switch of Assyria for them to do that. That is God's motive. Well, second of all, let's look at Assyria's motive. What's Assyria's motive? Verse 7, But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. This isn't what's on Assyria's mind. This isn't what's on the king of Assyria's mind. Him thinking, you know, I know God wants to discipline his people in Jerusalem. So I think here's what I'll do. I will wage warfare so as to be an instrument of discipline on his people. Of course, that's not what he's thinking. 
Now, one, one prominent uh, pastor in preaching through this said that, that it wasn't Assyria's intention to attack Jerusalem. It wasn't Assyria's intention to go down there and attack them, but God made them do it. And I think that's utterly wrong. That's not what it says here. Because look at what his intentions are. Look back at verse 7. But he does not so intend, meaning Assyria or perhaps the king of Assyria. He does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. It is his intention to attack them. It is his intention to trample them in the streets. It is his intention to go down there and beat them, to kill them. To do exactly the things that God said. But what's the difference? What's the difference? Here's the difference. He continues. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? He's saying, I am greater than Jerusalem. Assyria is greater than Judah. We're going to go down there and trounce them like we trounced everybody else. So what was different? Was Assyria not wanting to attack Israel? Not wanting to attack Jerusalem or Judah? Oh no, they they wanted it. That's exactly what they wanted, but they had a different purpose. And the purpose they had was self-aggrandizement. They wanted their name to be great, their glory to be great, their riches to be great, their military victories to be great. And so that's why they went down there. What was God's intention for them to go down to Jerusalem? To discipline them for their disobedience. To discipline them for the things that they've done. God was expressing his wrath and his fury against Jerusalem. Assyria couldn't care less about God's wrath and fury. Assyria just wanted to own their stuff. Assyria just wanted to go down there and beat them. To have victory once again in this area. And so we see God's motive is one thing. Assyria's motive is another thing. But they are different motives for exactly the same events. Exactly the same events. It is not as though God took Assyria that was just minding their own business. And said, nah, I'm going to make you go down here. No, Assyria wanted to go down there. That was their plan. And they were going to do it so they could enrich their own pocketbook. So they could make their own victory even greater. Well, verse 12 tells us about God's judgment God's judgment so we read about this situation that God said to Assyria the the rod of my anger I'm going to send you down and here's what I want you to do but Assyria doesn't doesn't have the same plan they plan the same events but they do so for completely different purposes and we see God's judgment in verse 12 when the Lord had finished has finished all his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem meaning when he's done with the switch when he's done with the rod when, he has, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And then he goes on to reiterate all these things that the king of Assyria said. So here you have this situation. You have an instance of judgment. God has reached for the switch that is Assyria to punish the people of Jerusalem. And then when he's done with that, he's going to punish the switch for its arrogance in doing so. Not, 
He's not punishing Assyria that Assyria went down and did stuff to Jerusalem or Judah. He's punishing Assyria for the arrogance of their own heart and their own motives for why they did those things. They wanted to make themselves great. They couldn't care less about God. They couldn't care less if, the, if God's people were obedient to him or not. They just wanted to go to war and, in, and enrich themselves. And so, once God is finished with the switch, he will break the switch. Because of the switch's arrogant heart and attitude, boastful look in his eyes. You see down to verse 15, after having restated and reemphasized the, the boastful heart of the people of Assyria, we see verse 15, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore, and here you have the statement of judgment, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. He is going to render judgment upon Assyria, the switch. Assyria was doing exactly what they wanted to do, but they were doing it for their boastful, evil desires. And God used them. He grabbed them and He disciplined His people, doing exactly those same things. And God was doing it for His own godly and good desires. One of the one of the objections that's often raised to a high view of God's specific sovereignty, even over human will, is that people think it removes man's responsibility. But this passage shows that that is not the case. And Genesis 50 and verse 20 shows that it is not the case. And many others show that it is not the case. The Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible doesn't say, well, if God is sovereign, even over the will of man, therefore man is not responsible. It's not the biblical message. Assyria was an instrument in God's hands, doing God's bidding, and Assyria also bears the judgment of God because in doing so, they had their own evil motives. God's all-encompassing and specific sovereignty does not absolve man of his responsibility for his actions. That is a faulty and philosophical conclusion which flies in the face of this passage and of others in Scripture. How can man be held accountable? If God is that sovereign, if He's sovereign even over the will of man, how can He be held accountable? Well, the answer from this passage is that He is accountable for His own motives, even as He does the very actions that God ultimately decreed to take place. He has His own evil motives in doing them, and God has His good motives in doing them. And the switch deserves judgment. This is a, this is a doctrine that, we, that has, a, has a label. It has probably different labels, but compatibilism is, uh, is probably the best label. And we see it spelled out. We see those two wills acting together in the next passage we want to look at, which asks and answers the question, whose will is ultimate? Turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in Acts 4, and then we're going to turn over briefly to Acts chapter 2, but starting in Acts chapter 4. So here we are in the New Testament, and again, an entirely different context. 
And you have this situation where Peter and John have been arrested. They've been brought before the council. And now they've been released. And the people of God are praying. They're praising God for what he has done in releasing uh, these people and more specifically for what he's done in Christ and all that. So you have this great prayer meeting. And you have very high statements about God's sovereignty and what's going on here in this passage. They, in speaking of this situation, in speaking of what has gone on in Jerusalem, what has happened to Jesus and now what is happening to Jesus' people, the Christians, we read in 25, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. You see, they were gathered together and seeking to do their worst. They weren't gathered together to throw a party for Jesus. They weren't gathered together to try and do good for him. They were seeking to do their worst. And so here, in this situation that the New Testament church realizes is a, a, a quotation from the Old Testament, all the way back in the Psalms, they're saying that which was talked about there is what happened in Jesus. The Gentiles rage, the people's plot in vain, the kings, they're all together against the Lord and against His anointed they were seeking to do their worst. And so that's what this early church is recognizing. For truly in this city were gathered together all of these against your holy servant Jesus. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They were gathered seeking to do their worst and instead they accomplished God's best. To do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. So just like we saw back in Isaiah, where you see God reaching out for his own purposes to grab that switch to discipline his people, and then you see at the same time that switch, that rod of discipline, Assyria doing exactly the same events, the same things, but doing so for his own purposes. You see that actually Assyria was fulfilling God's will, was doing exactly what God wanted to be done. And you saw the same thing back with Joseph and his brothers. Joseph's brothers weren't trying to bless their brother when they sold him into slavery. They wanted him gone. But God wanted him sold into slavery so he would be taken down into Egypt so that he would then deliver the people and provide for them. They intended it. And God intended it. And here in this situation, you've got all of these people gathered together to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Though in their minds, they are gathered against the Lord and against His anointed. They have a goal. They have something they're seeking to accomplish it. And we see in this passage that God's plan carries the day. They were seeking to do their worst. They ended up accomplishing God's best. And that's because God's plan carries the day. Flip back real quick to Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. Peter's sermon. Just briefly, he makes a comment on it. Acts 
He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. He says, not only was God aware of it in advance, Peter could have said, God, foreknowing that this would happen, did something. But it doesn't only mention foreknowledge. It mentions the definite plan, the intention, the purpose, the design of God. Of course he knows it in advance. Of course he has foreknowledge of that situation. But that was his plan. He was intending to accomplish that. And of course, that which he accomplished, that which they were not seeking to accomplish, but, but in the end did, was the crucifixion of the Son of God. Which they thought would be the end of it. They thought would give them victory. And of course, what ends up happening with the crucifixion of the Son of Man? He gets the victory. He gets the victory. So what are we to conclude? How do God's will and ours interact with one another? Well, the Bible addresses that topic and it gives us an answer. And the answer is that God's sovereignty works in such a way that we make choices, we do what we want to do, and that thing we want to do and freely choose to do is the very thing determined beforehand by God that we would do. That's how His sovereignty works. That's how His sovereign will and our creaturely will work together. We have preferences. We make free choices according to our nature. And these free choices that we make are according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Not only His foreknowledge as as if He saw them in advance, but also according to His definite plan. He planned and intended what our choices would be. It was His choice and it was our choice. It's His choice and it's our choice. Joseph's brothers wanted to sell him into slavery. They wanted to. That was their, that was their goal. And they did it. The king of Assyria wanted to plunder Judah. And Herod and Pilate wanted to kill Christ for their own reasons. They wanted to. It wasn't as if God took someone who was on a particular path and said, no, 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 I'm not going to let you do that thing you want to do. Instead, I'm going to make you do this thing over here that you don't want to do. What about Pilate? Did Pilate want to put Jesus to death? Well, in one sense, no, he didn't. He washed his hands. He said, I don't see anything wrong. But what did Pilate ultimately decided, cast his vote against him. And why did he do so? Because he wanted to retain his position. And so though he didn't want to kill Jesus, that wasn't his overriding thing, yet he wanted to retain his political position. He wanted to stay safe. He wanted to stay friends with the people he was governing and with Caesar. And so what did he do? Because he wanted this thing so much, he agreed to to kill Jesus. So he wanted to kill Jesus more than he wanted to lose his position. So even Pilate did what he wanted to do. In each of these cases, and in every case, That thing that they did was meant by God. It was intended by Him. But for very different purposes than was purposed in the the heart of evil man. 
So we see that God intended and man intended. People will sometimes argue against what I presented today by pointing to passages that talk only about man's will. Only talk about man's responsibility. Passages that don't say anything about the, 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 the governing sovereignty of God that's behind the scenes in those cases. And they will bring those verses and they will say, well, this didn't say anything about God's sovereign will. This says, you need to choose this. You need to do this. You need to believe. It doesn't say anything about God's sovereign will. And that's their argument against me. But I don't, I don't see that as as an argument against my position. I preach those verses as they are written in that passage. I believe those verses. They don't, they don't argue against what I've been saying today. Those passages simply focus on the human will. They simply focus on the human responsibility without making reference to the divine sovereign will that's operating behind the scenes. Using a passage or any number of passages that focus on man's will or responsibility as an argument against God's ultimate divine sovereign will, also working in the background, is completely unfounded. That would be like arguing against a verse that argues for the humanity of Christ and saying, see, therefore, the deity of Christ is not true. Because this verse only argued for the humanity of Christ. We would never argue that way. We know that the Bible doesn't have to focus on everything all the time. It can't. It doesn't need to. But We need to read the whole thing and read it together. Today's passages, and we, we could have brought up more passages, discuss both God's sovereign, specific, ultimate will, and man's will and responsibility. That's why I've chosen these, because both are discussed in the same place. Man freely chooses what he wants to do, and that choice that he makes in wanting, in choosing what he wants to do is what God had already chosen beforehand for him to do. God makes his choice for his reasons. We make our choice for our reasons. The choice is the same. The action is the same, though the motive is vastly, vastly different. And that truth, I believe, is ultimately beyond our finite capacity to comprehend, to get entirely in our brain. But I believe it accurately represents what Scripture teaches us. And so I'm not concerned that I can't wrap my brain around that fact. My concern is to accurately present what Scripture teaches on these topics. We need to believe Scripture even when our thinking can't comprehend it. And so today we come to the Lord's table. And we have, we have reason to rejoice together at God's sovereign will being accomplished despite the evil intentions of men. It comes to the the greatest head. It comes to, to the focal point in Jesus, the Son of God. Herod and Pilate, Jews and Gentiles were gathered to put to death the Messiah, the Son of God. They weren't thinking of redemption. They weren't, they were thinking instead of revenge and of their own religious power and how to hold on to it. They weren't thinking that Jesus' life was the fulfillment of the law's requirement of righteousness. But God was. They weren't thinking that his death would be payment in full for the guilt of sinners. But God was. That's what God 
was accomplishing. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, we celebrate the single most profound example of God intending for good the actions that man intended for evil. In this moment, in this thing that we celebrate right now, in the, in the death of Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And so we see it come right to a head in this thing that we celebrate right now. So go ahead and grab your elements. We're going to celebrate together. We're going to be reminded of exactly what it was God was accomplishing in Christ when man was doing his worst. You see, this, this thing that we celebrate, this Lord's Supper that we celebrate, is the greatest victory ever. that was accomplished exactly at the moment when the enemy thought he had gained the greatest victory. When, when he was sure Jesus had lost, Jesus was winning the greatest victory. And you and I receive the spoils of that greatest victory. That's what we get to celebrate right now. So go ahead and carefully uh, prepare your cup and get the bread ready. This is a celebration that this probably seems odd to the rest of the world. But it's, it's so important for Christians. See, the fact is that we, fallen people, sinners, require reconciliation with God. We're not born in a right relationship with God. We don't achieve right relationship with God by anything we can do or accomplish. Everything we do is, has been tainted by our sin. And so we are born as objects of God's wrath. That's, it, that's our nature. God's, God's requirement of, of man is perfect obedience. Perfect and perpetual and personal obedience to God's law. And we've never given that. And the punishment that he gives, that he requires for someone who has broken his law, is, is death. Eternal death. Payment of an eternal and infinite debt. And so you and I owe that debt. You and I have not kept that law, thus we are guilty, and we owe that debt. And into that, he sent his son. He sent Jesus, his son, born as a baby, born as one of us. And though we have disobeyed at every turn, he was always obedient, perfectly fulfilling God's righteous requirement in his own obedience to the law. And then when he went to the cross, he did so not for anything he had done. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for those who have broken God's law, to pay the penalty for sinners that they should have paid he went to that cross and bore that penalty. He was completing God's righteous requirement of the law. He was finishing God's righteous requirement of the law. And so this celebration that we, that we do right now is a reminder to each of us Christians 
And it's a warning to everyone who's not a Christian that we do not have what it takes to please God. That in ourselves we are objects of wrath if we were to go on our merit. That we, we've not kept His law. We've not loved Him as we ought. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves as we ought. We've not kept His Ten Commandments. We've not, we've not obeyed. And so we who are in Christ have come to realize, I do not have merit of my own. I have only demerit to offer. But Christ and His perfect and complete righteousness is offered to me, is offered to you by faith in Him. And so... The Christian comes to the Lord's Supper and realizes his own deep, deep need. And I still don't measure up in myself. And God the Father looks at the merits of Christ because of what Christ has done, because of what we celebrate right here, because of his life of righteousness and has peace towards me. So if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ... I would encourage you to believe in Him. You're standing on your own merits and you don't have any. Look to Christ. Trust in Him. And in Him, you will find forgiveness of your sins and you will find a perfect track record before God of merit, of perfect and ultimate and complete and finished merit before God because of what Christ has done. But if you don't know Christ, let let the elements pass today. This is something that you need to think about these gospel truths before you ever partake of communion. You need to be made right with God because of Christ. And Christian, even as I've talked about our sin, our sin is real and it's much deeper and worse than we've ever imagined. And what does that do for us? It would make us down in the dumps if we were relying on our merit. It would cause us to be miserable if we were relying upon our merit. What it ought to do, Christian, is cause us to look away from ourselves and look to Christ and what He's done. And we rejoice and we celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper today, celebrate the fact that we have peace with God through Jesus and what He has done here today. And so, as you take the bread, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. This represents the body of Christ broken for you, that you might be reconciled to God. Let's pray together before we partake. Father, we hold in our hand the bread representing to us the body of Christ given for us. It's like a promise made to us of what Jesus is doing. And when I partake of this, when I eat of this, I celebrate Christ and I rejoice in the fact that I get to partake of Him and thus have eternal life. And anyone here who will turn to Christ, anyone here who will believe in Him, will partake of Christ, will have right relationship with you. We'll have peace with you, reconciliation with you. And so we celebrate the body of Christ given for us even now. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next we come to the cup. Continuing in 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This represents the blood of Christ that he spilled to redeem us. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands the cup representing the blood of Christ. Another promise by Jesus to us of his payment and his payment in full and that we get to partake in it. Father, we are so grateful that Jesus gave his own life, sacrificed himself and did so not because of any desert of his own, not because of any demerit of his own, but to redeem us. So even as we partake now, we celebrate Christ, we rejoice in him and in his offering for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And then when I'm done praying, there'll be a family up front who would love to pray with you. They would love specifically to talk to you about the gospel. If you don't know Christ and you have more questions, come up and talk to them or find me. But they would love to pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you speak to us from your word about what is true. That you tell us what you are like so that we don't have to fumble around. You tell us what our relationship with you is like. What what even our will, as it relates to your will, is like. Some of these things are ultimately beyond our comprehension. But you speak of them clearly and truly. And I pray that you would help us to believe what you speak to us. Father, thank you for our opportunity. Thank you for... Jesus himself, that though he was put to death at the hands of lawless men, yet it was you accomplishing your definite plan for our redemption and for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all and you are dismissed.